welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm your host, Michelle Chihara. I'm the editor-in-chief here at LARB, and today's episode is a special edition of the LARB Book Club. I'm speaking with Jenny Liu, the author of Muscle Memory. The LARB Book Club is a premium LARB membership program. It gives you all the discounts and other benefits of our LARB supporter membership program with a bonus package of four books a year delivered to your door. To join, please visit shop.lereviewofbooks.org backslash join. Jenny Liu is a poet and a scholar, and we're here today to talk about Muscle Memory, which is a gorgeous and intense series of autobiographical poems about family, vulnerability, and who we fight, and why, and how. Jenny has an undergraduate degree in biology, an MFA in poetry, and a PhD in English, and she also trained martial arts as a kid, ran track in college, and then began training jiu-jitsu at a gym in Costa Mesa during her time in graduate school. Eventually, that led to a career as a professional mixed martial arts cage fighter. Muscle memory draws on all of these complicated paths through different forms of competition and different kinds of loyalty. She tells me that her first professional fight was in 2014, and her last was in 2017 for a variety of outfits, including Invicta, which is the pioneering women's fighting organization that was a pipeline to the UFC. I met Jenny when she was still an undergraduate at UC Irvine, which is kind of mad. (laughs) And we're gonna talk about that time, about the past that we share to some degree, and we're gonna talk about these poems. But the first thing I wanna say about meeting Jenny back in the day was that I really remember her intensity in seminars and classes where we'd be talking about poetry, about language. And I learned a lot from the insight and the force that she brought to bear on interpreting language. Both of us actually went from MFAs in writing to graduate programs in literature and then braved the academic job market, which is a different kind of cage fight. At one point long ago, she invited me to see her fight in a mixed martial arts fight at a casino in the Inland Empire. And that was when I learned that she was fighting professionally and I couldn't go. And I still regret it to this day that I never got to see her fight live. Her work delves into the experiences that make us who we are, but that are also never easily categorized. So I'm really excited to dive into this and to talk about all of this with you, Jenny. But could you start with the background that I just kind of went over briefly and tell me a little bit about how we got to this Point where we've got muscle memory out on shelves? Oh, yeah. I think it, the story boils down to a lot of being in the moment with absolutely no planning. I kind of abruptly left my pathway like as a biologist because I decided I wanted to be a poet and uh, just kind of like leapt into that without thinking and then was like, oh my gosh, here I am writing poems and I'm not doing anything with my body anymore. Like I need a sport. And I had done jujitsu as a little kid. And so I was like, I guess it's going to be jujitsu. And I walked into a gym, trained for a few weeks. And then my coaches were like, hey, like, give us 50 bucks and come to this tournament. And I was like, yeah, okay, I guess. And they did not tell me that it was the US Open. I think it's the US Open. All the jujitsu tournaments have big, important sounding names. And none of them are like that big and important. But this one was kind of bigger. But women's MMA wasn't such a big deal back then. So they put everyone 
into a single competition. There were no bounce, there were no weight classes, nothing. And the first time they drew the brackets, I got a reasonable opponent. The second time they drew the brackets, I got a girl who outweighed me by like 60, 70, 80 pounds. And Ooh. the reason they redrew them was because her prior opponent had complained. And I was like, bring it, which wasn't really an act of bravery. It was more an act of just accepting the absurdity that here I was like in a like national level tournament with like black belts and stuff. And I was like, I've been doing this sport for two weeks. So <laughs> what new problem could this bring really? But I remember, like, I think, I mean, hence the title of the book, Muscle Memory, right? Like I had trained as a much younger kid before abandoning martial arts for other sports. And so on the first day at the gym, they're like, okay, we're doing takedowns. And someone grabbed me by the collar and I kicked through them. And they're like, oh, okay. Like, you can fight. And I was like, apparently, but I don't know that in my brain. So I'm like very nervous. This feels ridiculous. So I lost terribly. This is not some sort of Cinderella story. But then some woman came down on the stands and was like, that was so incredibly brave. You're going to be a great fighter. And then offered to pay for a year of private lessons. So that is how I suddenly, randomly became a serious martial artist. I was just feeling like I had to take her up on that gift, and I started training jujitsu. And then someone was like, put on gloves, get a mouth guard, like hop in the cage. And I said yes, and fell in love with it. So there's not any sort of, you know, there was never a driving urge to do any of this, or feeling like there was some violence that needed to be worked out. More like it was just like really exciting and I think did feel the need for some sort of like tactile way of like holding on to everyday experiences that just like sitting like at my desk I think it continues to be a welcome balance to the more cerebral side of life yeah can you talk about leaving biology and diving into poetry and then learning to write poems and fight at the same time yeah, so that was actually horribly disappointing. I think maybe most of us in our busy lives think like, if I just had all the time in the world, like I'd be a genius writer. <laughs> no, it turns out that is like not the case. I went from like loving writing and doing it around the edge of every day to being like, oh, you know, I have nothing to do but spend these years writing a book. Like, book, where are you? And no book magically appeared. And then I started going to jujitsu during what probably should have been writing time. But I guess it's all worked out at the end. One thing I learned is that maybe writing is part of that routine of everyday living, almost like a part of like my metabolism or something, right? It's not something that for me, I could be like, now is my writing time and here is my book. That's certainly not how muscle memory emerged. I wrote this like around the edges of my day. You know, not when I was studying biology anymore, but around the edges of the times when I was working as an adjunct and teaching English classes while also training full-time as a fighter. How many hours did you spend in the gym? Can you even just talk to me about your days when you were writing the book and training? Gosh, I think my goal was to be in the gym for eight hours and think of it like a full-time job. It was kind of woven into my day. I was teaching at Northwest Indian College in Lapway, Idaho, which is like kind of like out in the middle of nowhere. And when I started the job, I remember them being like, Are you okay? is this going to be an okay commute? It's kind of far from your home. And I was like, no, it's okay. And I almost said, it's like right by my jujitsu gym. And then I was like, oh crap, I probably shouldn't say that in my English professor job. But then it was too late because I had halfway said it. and They knew I was going to say something. So then I just had to say it. And then they were like, oh, if you fight, do you want to teach boxing here? And I was like, okay. <laughs> so 
that ended up with me teaching like boxing and like leading various fitness workshops and then also just playing a lot of basketball like very poorly because you know I was like whatever like I'm wearing gym clothes I might as well just like do something like between classes so yeah I guess it ended up just being a season of life in which motion and physicality was woven into everything I'd like teach a class in gym clothes and then we'd go out on the front lawn and have a boxing class and then like run up the canyon yeah in retrospect it was a lot of fun at the time it was really exhausting it sounds exhausting but it also sounds almost as if the writing serves as a way to metabolize what you're learning in other parts of your life I think that's a really interesting way to think about what the discipline of writing poetry is in relationship to the discipline of fighting. Yeah, I definitely think that's part of it. An interesting part of the writing process for me was that a lot of the poems in this book, especially the fighting ones, started off as essay attempts. I just was like, here is the essay draft, and now I'm going to revise it. And I kept revising and revising and revising until it ended up being like, you know, each poem ended up I'm calling them poems. Each poem ended up being about half a page long. And I was like, but where's my 300 page book? What happened? So I kind of had to come to terms with that and then realized that maybe they were poems all along. And that part of my thought process, which I think is like really similar to kind of like honing a move or a plan for a fight, was just to kind of start off with like all this stuff and all of these possibilities and then kind of like hone everything down to the absolute minimum. So you were actually intending to write a book of essays? It was certainly at a time in my life when I was reading mostly memoir and was like, I can write one of those. And I couldn't. I don't know. Sometimes like the input and the output are are not the same. Like I love watching boxing. I've trained boxing for years. I love all of the literature around the sport of boxing. And then I get in the cage and I'm still a crappy boxer. And jujitsu has none of that sort of aesthetic appeal for me, or at least it didn't at the start. But I just fell in love with the sport right from the get-go. So it's always kind of been poetry and jujitsu as the outputs, even if the inputs are boxing and memoir. Who knows? Can you say something for our listeners who might not be as familiar with boxing versus jujitsu? Boxing is like when you're just like standing up and you're having to like move around quickly and punch people, and then step back or slip to the side and not get hit. And I'm terrible at that aspect of it because I don't like all of this. Like, I'm not good at slipping. I'm like just sort of like, this is happening now. And it's just sort of like plows straight ahead. So the part of the sport that was so much just sort of fancy footwork and speed and lightness really didn't work for me at all because it was like I could practice and I could watch the tape. But it was like never in my reflexes, like not at all. And then jujitsu was just like intuitive to me. It's like you are like touching someone like the whole time. And there is still like all of the trickery and deceit, but it's almost like in a scholarly way. Like you plan all of the moves and you know all the possibilities of like what could happen next, but you're touching the other person. It's not like the distance, closeness, step away, like watch out, get out of the way. It's like you're always right there. I think that just comes to me much more naturally. And maybe poetry has like seemed to be that same thing too. I don't know. Like my problem, I think still, I'm trying to write another book, which supposedly is essays again. And I think this one cannot turn into a book of poems, (laughs) but I'm certainly feeling that same issue, which might be a pacing issue. Like those places where it can breathe and the places where it's like, you know, more 
condense and then it breathes again. I tend to just want it to be like, okay, like what does this look like if you take all of this space out of it? There is a line in your book that I'm not going to be able to reproduce for memory, but it's a poem where you're thinking about how people get hurt in fights and you say something about being so close. You're thinking about the fight as a space where you need to stay close in order to both not get hurt. I can't reproduce it now, but it's making me think of this because you said that about staying in jujitsu in contact with the other person at all times. Yeah, I think the line you're talking about, it, well, it kind of like, it goes on for a while, um, but I think that it ends with uh, like something about like thinking I was learning the secrets of staying too close to get hurt. Yes. Is that the one you're thinking about? Can you tell me which poem it's in? We can reproduce it. It is called Dirty Boxing. Will you read just that last sentence? Sure. You learn to make your body listen to your mind and not your reflexes, ignoring the bruises bluing beneath your shirt thinking you're learning the secrets of staying too close to get hurt. So part of what I think is so amazing about that line is that even in the moment in the poem, it's clear that you think you're learning the secrets of staying too close to get hurt, but of course you're still getting hurt. And there's so much in the book about trying to control vulnerability, trying to get strong enough not to be vulnerable anymore, and then learning again and again that just vulnerable in a different way, no matter how much you learn to fight. Can you think about that out loud for a second? You know, I think there's this sort of meditation in the book on how some of the things that make women athletes, like good athletes, and seem like the things where like, you know, especially in such a masculine world of sports, it seems like, you know, that's the thing that's making you tough and that's what's making you good at what you do. You know, those are the same characteristics that I think leaves women like really vulnerable to abuse. And, you know, I certainly had my own tangles with domestic violence at various times. And, you know, I think there's a sense of like, I'm going to be tough. I'm going to be silent. I can take this. I'm going to find some way through this. That's incredibly like admirable as a fighter. One of the first things you learn about getting in the cage is that no matter what anyone does to you, it cannot show on your face. And if it shows on your face, it's going to be 10 times worse. If they kick your leg and you wince, then they're going to kick your leg again. So you really learn those kind of icy cold composure that has to do with just staying right there and pretending nothing's happening. And thinking about that as like the ultimate virtue. And I think it's kind of hard to figure out how to lead that double life where you have that kind of stoicism in the cage and outside you're like, this isn't the life I want to live. So I'm going to leave, right? Whereas, you know, in the cage, you would never think to turn your back. I was thinking about the way that I think a lot of women have fantasies about learning to fight to prove that those who have not taken us seriously, who have underestimated us, who have disrespected us, who have tried to control us, all of those things, learning to fight seems like a way to push back through all of that. And one of the things that I think the book is really just nuanced in its understanding of is that that fantasy plays into how you get into the cage. But then once you're in there, it's not like the fantasy. (laughs) And in fact, even once you leave the cage, even if you win, even if you get the young man in a chokehold, it doesn't deliver the promise of that fantasy. Oh, it certainly does not. I mean, not to like 
drawing too far into like my rage state of mind sometimes, but I mean, maybe all of us have had the thought of like, I wish I could get in a fight right now. And if I were not trained as a professional fighter, maybe I'd get in a fight in some of those instances, right? And instead of being like, oh, I feel so equipped to get in a fight. Now I'm just sort of like, Jenny, you know what? It's probably not going to look very good if like some girl comes at you and you like knock her out and then the cops show up and then they're like, well, one of you is a professional fighter. So what happened, right? So I've actually been like, oh, now I can't scrap anymore slash ever. It's not like I was, you know, out there brawling before I came out. <laughs> but it certainly has not led to that kind of empowerment. If anything, like I think one thing that you learn is like how very strong people are. <laughs> like anyone can hurt you in an off moment or a bad day or something, you know? So... I don't know if it's a secret power that I carry around so much as a sense of like, oh, all of these people have bodies and <laughs> I want them to keep their bodies over there. <laughs> so it's like learning about the power of everyone's body. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Jenny Liu, author of a collection of poems called Muscle Memory. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Mackenzie Wark on the line. Mackenzie Wark is the author of many books and her latest one is Raving. And she's here to give us a book recommendation. Mackenzie. My book recommendation is Felt Us by Cecilia Gentili and is published by Little Puss Press. And the subtitle is letters to people in my hometown except my rapist. So the book sort of then sets you up with what the story is going to be. It's a story by a trans woman recounting her youth in a provincial city in Argentina and how being from an early age identifiable as some kind of gender and sexual other puts her in a position of being exploited by basically everybody in this town and how everybody in the town covers it up that's my recommendation. It's a really terrific, terrific book. How did you come across this book? As a trans writer in New York, I know the other trans writers in New York and I, I make it my business to go to their readings and to interact and, you know, program them when I do readings and things like that. But Cecilia is also a legend among New York City trans people and is, is trans mom to probably hundreds she did outreach for a very important trans healthcare center here and has done all sorts of other kind of advocacy work and organizing work for trans women and for sex workers and particularly Latinas in that world. So Cecilia is already kind of a legend and then on top of all her other achievements then wrote this amazing book. Great. And is that her first book? Yeah, absolutely. First book. She used to do these um, spoken word monologue pieces which were kind of amazing. And the book is based a little bit in some of those, but it's got a whole different, you know, texture and quality on the page. Wow. Well, that sounds definitely like something to check out. Can you tell us the author and the title one more time? It's by Cecilia Gentili and the title is Feltas, F-A-L-T-A-S, or, or faults or fault lines in Spanish. And it's from Little Puss Press. It's the first book from Little Puss Press, which is a trans-run feminist press here in New York. Great. Thank you so much, Mackenzie. You're welcome. That was Mackenzie Wark. Her latest book is Raving. 
You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Jenny Liu, author of Muscle Memory. Can you talk a little bit, though, about towards the end of the book, there's a poem where you end up teaching a young girl to fight, to spar, and in watching her feel the power of her own body, you seem to kind of engage with that sense of empowerment in a different way. Can you talk about that for a second? Oh, I just got goosebumps thinking about her. When you teach a sport to someone, there's this sense of, you know, they have this desire to like understand how to like do whatever, in this case, like enact that kind of violence with their body. And I think that we forget how much of that people just know how to do. And like with just the littlest bits of coaching, like kids in particular are just able to kind of like channel what it is that they want to do. And they're able to do it with like such a ferocity that it just astonishes me. Like I was kind of like, okay, she doesn't know anything. And then, you know, just instructed her on how to throw a few punches. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, it's like, now I've got to like, watch out. She's going to hurt me. In the gym, I just, I got tapped by a white belt the other day, which I think most people are like, oh, I can't let that happen. And for me, I was like, I'm not in danger. I like kind of coach this girl at the time. And I had my arm out thinking like, oh, she'll try an arm bar and I'll get out of it. And then the moment came and I was like, I can't get out of that. There's no way out. But it's an interesting feeling because I'm like, I lost. But then like, you know, I'm also patting this coach, Jenny. And that's, I think, been an interesting but necessary transition that was a little bit hard to kind of go from thinking like these people are the competition to being like I at some point lost that hunger for this board probably lost whatever it is makes a punch thing I can still show someone else the mechanics it's probably good that I lost that to be honest like life is probably a lot happier when you're (laughs) you know when fantasies of like honing your own brute force are not the thing in the world that's most important to you. Can you talk about that a little bit alongside the transition to becoming a mother, which is also one of the changes that you talk about in the book? If I remember correctly in that poem, you were pregnant. So you're teaching a young girl to fight, but also thinking about protecting another life. Yeah. I had really, really terrible morning sickness paired with all sorts of, I think, psychological stuff going on. Like I had like, when I was pregnant with my first kid, I had such terrible vertigo that I was like afraid if I got close to the edge of something, I was afraid it was going to fall off. My mom got me a paddleboard because she was like, this is the most boring sport I could think of. So I thought it would be a good thing for you to do while you're pregnant. And, um, I was scared to stand on the paddleboard because I don't know, some brand new fear of heights that it's ridiculous to like someone who like grew up rock climbing and was used to getting in the cage. And I think that fear really stuck with me. Like I don't recall ever really having been afraid of anything until then. And then it was stuff that I wouldn't have flicked an eye at in the past was suddenly terrifying. And I don't know, maybe that was my way, my body's way of slowing me down before my kid and now kids got here but I certainly had this sort of like visceral need to protect them I never thought I wanted them to fight or do anything like this but they're both definitely going to <laughs> so I started missing jiu-jitsu they came into the gym with me 
And now I'm like, I shouldn't have taught my son is four now. And I'm like, I should not have taught him how to arm bar because we get in a disagreement over how many cookies are going to be eaten. And then be like, Mom, I'm going to arm bar you. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we can use that as a kind of segue into one of the other topics in the book, which is you, you speak a, a fair amount about your parents about some of what you inherited from them and thinking through your ancestry and how the stories of our past kind of resurface in our lives. It's fascinating to know that your father trained martial arts, but then kind of doesn't want you to fight. It's complicated. You know, I think for him, martial arts really were a way of hanging on to his family's history my dad came from a nationalist Chinese family. And so his father followed Chiang Kai-shek to Taiwan. And my dad grew up in Taiwan. And reading these serial Chinese martial arts dramas, practicing Kung Fu, and thinking about all the legends about like Shaolin Kung Fu and all of that. So I think it really was a connection, his way of connecting to his Chinese history, which he then brought with him when he immigrated to the States. So I think he thought of it in that sort of nostalgic cultural memory kind of way. And then all of a sudden he's like, wait, why is my daughter like punching people in the face and coming up with black eyes? And like, this isn't really, it wasn't what the sport was to him at all. And so I think it took a lot of explaining and a lot of begging him to watch my fight videos before we could begin to have a conversation about how it really was something different to me. At least at the start, I wasn't thinking of it as like a way of connecting with my culture or a way of connecting with my family. If anything, at the time, it felt like a little bit of rebellion. But I think at this point, it probably has come full circle. One of the things I've really been thinking about alongside my fighting journey is that I don't speak Chinese. And I've tried so hard to learn it as an adult. And there's some poems in muscle memory that are translations that's me doing my best with Google Translate and like distant memory of like repeatedly trying to learn Chinese over the year and then some extant translations and then my dad's transliterations. So all sorts of things have been going on into these and I'm just so frustrated by how hard it is to learn the language and how in part, especially speaking of languages, like it feels like such a physical barrier. Like I can't make my mouth say the sound, even if I've heard it like 10 times in a row. And that's exactly, you know, you feel that feeling in martial arts as well, right? Especially if it's a scary move or something, you watch the video, you try to do it, you try to do it, you get it in the drill, then you get into a fight and your brain says, do that thing. And then it's just like hitting a wall, you know? And so in a way, martial arts have become a kind of like physical language that I think has allowed me to ultimately connect with my family and have these conversations with my dad that I might not have had otherwise at all. But wasn't really that interested in learning Chinese at the time. Like back when you knew me in grad school, I was obsessed with learning Latin. You might remember that. I was very, I, I, failed, I, I failed the Latin exams the first time around like terribly. My dad was like, why are you doing this? You cannot even talk to our family. Like, why would you be learning Latin? And I was like, because I love Cicero. It really took a long time, I think, to feel just the sort of hole left in my life and in my communication with my family because I couldn't speak Chinese. And it was really when I quit fighting that I immediately was like, I want to learn Chinese. And part of it's I have extra time, but I think somehow they felt the same 
need in my brain or something. I don't know. That makes a certain kind of sense. Learning Latin when there was pressure to learn Chinese. Learning a fight when there was pressure not to learn the fight. But then it's almost as if you have found the fight again once you realize that you were talking to your dad all along. Yeah. You know, I think being a poet was another form of rebellion against my dad. He's a civil engineering professor. And I was like, I can't do that. There's too many equations. And I just don't like that. But my original work as a biologist was somewhat related to what he does. And then I was like, I'm going to do this other thing and I'm going to be broke forever because like, I'm going to be an artist. And my family's kept like, what are you doing? And I thought that that was like the sort of one true path. And so they really pushed back hard against that. There's a problem in here about this. It was the moment when I least wanted to deal with it. I was like cutting 20 pounds for a fight. I was like super sweaty. I was like staying at my parents' house because it was like right next to my gym. And I'm like, I, my body hurts too much to like drive back to my house. And I walked into the kitchen and my dad was like, I have some poems I want to read to you. And I was like, now, <laughs> because I am disgusting and so tired. And I have, I'm starting to get a black eye and I just like really want to go to bed. And he just sat under the kitchen table and started reading poems for like hours. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I don't know, maybe it was like, you know, the rebellion of the whole, he was so against the fighting thing that he forgot about his objections to poetry. And then I discovered that he was like secretly like reading poetry and that he had this great love of poetry that he had been hiding because he was afraid it would like lead me down the wrong path in life or something. Like, I don't know, maybe it has. <laughs> in one of the readings that I saw you do at Skylight, towards the end, you were thinking about some of the fights that you've had to engage in outside of the cage. We're thinking about academia and some of that world. And you said something like, those fights are harder. Can you say something about what you meant by that? What were you thinking about when you were talking about that? I might have been thinking about one weekend in particular when I was giving a talk at a conference, a Shakespeare conference, and then turning right around and flying to a cage fight <laughs> and realizing like partway through that I was like 10 times like more nervous to give the talk than to do the cage fight. And there's all different kinds of fighters. There's like fighters who like think about stuff a lot or whatever, you know, I think I'm not one of those. Well, the ways think I will be since I'm a scholar, like in these other parts of life, but maybe what I, enjoyed about fighting was the way the sports voice did the opposite of that for me. It's about like drill, 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 get it. So your body remembers a certain set of things and then like turn your brain off. Like when you get there. Right. So anytime we're talking, like even in this interview right now, I'm just kind of like, what should I say? Or what if I say the wrong thing? Or like, what if someone asked me a question and I don't have the answer? what if I really want to say something then realize that it might hurt someone's feelings, right? All of this stuff goes through our heads when we're in these social and academic situations. And in a fight, it's kind of like, well, <laughs> whatever is going to happen is going to happen. This always felt like it's out of my hands. You're definitely going to hurt someone. You're probably going to get hurt. You may end up looking really silly 
you're definitely going to get paid. You might get a bonus, you know? It's just never really been that scary to me. It seems like, you know, fighting is like these huge uncertainties and some sort of like duke it out battle and the kind of stuff that like movies are made out of whatever. And I'm just kind of like, no, it's just like, I don't know what it is. You get ready and then it's like flipping a coin. You don't know what's going to happen and there's nothing you can do at that point, you know? At the beginning, we were talking about the time when we first met back in the days of the UC Irvine trailer park, which I feel like we should maybe explain for a second. When I started my MFA at UC Irvine, when you were still an undergrad, at that time, graduate students were not given graduate student housing if they were in the MFA program. So all the writers lived in this kind of unincorporated trailer park on the UC Irvine campus that was all like old air screams and Christmas tree lights and pink flamingo statues and things. And we used to have our trailer park poetry readings there where we would read from pages that we had handwritten or maybe printed out, but only on the sly. And then we would burn the pages in the fire pit and call them the trailer park poetry readings. And at various times in my life since then, I have tried to recreate those parties and that ethos, just the spontaneity and the feeling of being around people who really cared about language, but who weren't trying to win in that moment. I think that was really special at the trailer park. Can you just briefly say something about your engagement with the trailer park and what you remember from that time? Oh, yeah. So I found my way to the trailer park because some of the arts undergraduates lived there as well. And so I had a good friend who lived in the trailer park. And at the time I was like running steeplechase for UC Irvine. So the track and field race, it's like 3000 meters with a bunch of barriers and a water jump. And there were these chains like across the entrance and exit to the trailer park. And so I really liked to like go on training once they would run loops around it because I would like hurdle. And so people probably thought I was just like, a weird person like sprinting through the trailer park and then one day I ate it so hard I was just like doing my sprint to the trailer park saying hi to my friend and then just like caught my toe on the chain and like just fell and just random trailer park residents like came out and took care of me and everyone was so nice and so awesome and I was like I should live here and so then I did. And so I think that place was always kind of my sanctuary full of like nice people and healing. And those readings were part of what drew me into, into poetry. I think it was just such a wonderful way to think about <laughs> what it is that we do. Because it wasn't like, I'm going to write all these fancy books or anything. It was just sort of like, oh, I could walk out my door and there's people around a campfire and then being like, oh my gosh, like this is really, really good writing. And everyone is so nice. How do I stay in this world a little longer? And so I ended up staying at UC Irvine for an MFA. I guess we've known each other ever since. Yeah. I love that though. I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. I love the idea of you being drawn into a community of writers and a community of poets in similar ways at similar times. <laughs> it has been such an incredible pleasure to have this conversation with you. And I hope everyone goes out and buys Muscle Memory. And I look forward to the book of essays. That <laughs> <laughs> maybe becomes poems. <laughs> but whatever it is, I'm sure it'll be great. It's been so fun to talk to you. Likewise. We've been speaking with Jenny Liu, author most recently of Muscle Memory. Thanks for listening. 
still listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.